You're listening to The Blind Stealing the Blinds, a podcast by students of the game for students of the game. Join Dell and BJ for conversations about poker theory and bridging the gap between theory and application. We're all in this together, so let's get to it. This week's topic, how to manufacture EV or how to win without a hand. Hey, Dell, how's it going this week? Going fantastic. I just found out I'm going to be starting a, a job on uh, July 12th in Seabrook, New Hampshire, which is going to be neat because I'm going to get to take in. Uh, I'm going to get back to playing some live games there out at uh, a couple of the Seabrook card rooms, and uh, I might even make a trip to Concord or Manchester. And if uh, Massachusetts ever opens back up, I might even get down to Encore from there. So I mean, there's a lot of options to play. And uh... this isn't one of those jobs where they're lying to you, right? Like last <laughs> week. No, no, this job is actually probably going to go all the way through October. I'll be uh, I'll be working through October, which is unfortunate because it means I probably won't make a trip out to the WSOP this year. Well, that's unfortunate. How about you? How are things going for you? Things are going really well. Last week, I mentioned I was getting the condo ready for a new tenant. I closed on the condo two weeks ago. I posted the listing, and it stayed up for only four days. I was inundated with applicants, and I was able to find an excellent tenant who's willing to sign on for a two-year lease. She's fantastic. I'm expecting no trouble. She's very communicative. It's going to be great. So I'm excited about that. I'm also excited to talk to you this week about manufacturing EV or how to win without a hand. This is uh, this is one of the most important aspects of poker that divides you know, marginal winners, you know, or losers from big time winners, you know, you can't wait for a hand in live poker. There's not enough time. There's not enough time. You you might, you sit down for a four hour session, you may not get any good hands. You know, you may not get any good spots. So you have to manufacture a lot of those spots if you want to make money. And referencing episode one, a lot of people don't need good hands to just limp in. And we talked about why that's a terrible idea. So we (laughs) are not advocating that. We're going deeper down that rabbit hole to say, don't just limp. You also want to play good hands, but you can't always wait for the best hands. And honestly, you might not get that many good made hands in a session. Almost every single week, I will hear someone complaining about being flop dead or card dead. And the fact is, you're folding about 80% of the time. So you're really only playing maybe 20% of your hands. And if you happen to see 25 hands an hour, then over the course of four hours, you're going to see 100 hands. You might only play 20 of those. You might not ever play five of those past the turn to actually get to the river. I mean, when we look at it, you know, you're only going to get aces once out of every 222 hands on average. It's one of those things where, like, you'll get a you'll get a pair on average every 16 hands, but there's no guarantee that's a big pair, and it's no guarantee that that you're going to find a small pair and hit a set and, and score. And it's if we're waiting on them hands, are we waiting on them big hands, or when we hit a set or flop a boat, or you're going to waste a lot of time not 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 making any money. You know what I mean? Or losing a lot of money because a lot of people will bet they want to see a flop. Okay, they might not limp. They might actually open raise, which is what we advocate. That's fine. But then you only connect meaningfully with a flop maybe once out of every three times. So then if you're fit or fold, you're going to miss two-thirds of the time. You can only miss a flop two-thirds of the time so often before you go broke. 
Right. And there, there's more problems than, than what we've mentioned already with waiting for a big hand. You know, one of them is you wait for, you, you're waiting for Queens plus ace king before you play. And the next thing you know, yeah, you, you got Queens, but somebody else just beats you with a set and, and you have to deal with the reverse implied odds of that. So you can find yourself easy to play against, super easy to play against because people are going to be able to take and play hands against you that they may not be ahead, but they're going to know come flop whether or not they can continue or not, you know, because your range is going to be very limited. So if we can't always wait to get good hands, and if sometimes we get good hands, but they run into monsters, which is going to happen, then what's our solution? How do we get around this? It starts with a well-constructed range, obviously. So when I think it's important that everything that BJ and I say from here on out in this episode this doesn't mean you play any two cards. You you still have a well-constructed range from whatever position, but you can start looking for places that you might be able to add a hand or two in when you're looking at things like if you got somebody who is opening up 35, 40% of hands and you're finding that they're folding to three bets, then you can maybe open up your three bet range against them and take some hands down pre-flop. You know, if you find out that somebody is overfolding their flop or turns, then you can continue on a little bit more with some of your hands and attack those situations on the flop and the turn. Though those are like pretty obvious ones, but a lot of you know, it knowing it isn't enough. It's being able to take and pull that trigger, and that and, and that starts with a well constructed range. You know what I mean? A tight range isn't well constructed. It's too tight. It's too easy to play against. A well-constructed range is really hard to play against. So depending on our stack depth, we're going to find situations where, like, if we're deep enough, there are hands we can add in that have much better post-flop playability than, say, like, threes or twos. We can add in, like, 10-9, which is going to have a better flop playability. We can add in hands like that that allow us to have some more board coverage, be able to have more post-flop playability and be able to take down those hands with targeted, well-timed aggression. And I think that's something you're really good at. I have gotten better at the strategic aggression once I learned how to pump the brakes. What's weird about my game is that when I'm not thinking, I become hyper-aggressive and I just try to bully people, which is what we covered last week about ego. So that's kind of interesting there. Once I realized I could pump the brakes, I can apply the strategic aggression, but I could also be a little bit more passive. And one thing about applying strategic aggression is the hand selection, is the range construction. I think one thing we need to mention is that your ability to construct a range depends largely on what you want to accomplish and what you have at your disposal. If you only have one buy-in to your name, you probably shouldn't try to open 7-8 of hearts because it's a suited connector. Meanwhile, if you're really deep, you know, 200, 300 bigs, you can take those chances with the speculative hands. You can set mine. You can hit the, you know, like you said, 10-9 suited. You have more options available to you. But one thing I've noticed, and this goes back to your comment about people who are too flop honest or turn honest, post-flop, people will see bet. And I think they see that almost with wild abandon and not a really well-founded notion of why they're doing it because maybe they watched it in a YouTube video or heard a podcast, consumed some material passively that kind of convinced them see betting is a good thing to do. So let's do it all the freaking time. 
And then when they see Bet and you call them, they don't know what to do. They haven't watched the sequel video about what to do when someone calls your CBAT on the turn. I'm not saying there is such a video and there probably shouldn't be. But the point is, they don't know how to continue through the story of the hand, which is something I think we're going to cover in a future episode. Yeah. Three betting is one of the most effective ways to win hands without a hand. <laughs> you know, it's one, one of the most effective ways to win five. And it's not necessarily that you're winning it pre-flop, right? You, a lot of times you're winning that hand on the the flop or more often than not the turn because the game has changed you know when Harrington on Hold'em came out you could see bet the flop and print money you know well people are calling more flops some of them are calling flops when they shouldn't because they they heard that they're supposed to continue 70 percent of the time well yeah you're supposed to continue 70 percent of the time when you have the equity to continue so you're getting people calling more flops so sometimes you have to be a little more patient sometimes you you have to take and go along with maybe, well, first of all, when you have those boards that smash an aggressor's ring, you know, those boards that are very static and the hand that is ahead now is likely going to be the hand that's going to be ahead on the river, that really favors the aggressor in the hand. When you hit them boards, sure, you might bet that flop, but what happens a lot of times is the turn comes out that even improves that equity even more and people just give up because, hey, they called the flop. They're not going to fold. Well, that, that you know, as the aggressor, Maybe take another shot on that turn to take that down. Because when you have that situation, it becomes harder and harder for somebody who's got called with a capped range. Let's go, let's back up just for a second. I mean, when we are the aggressor pre flop and somebody calls us, you know, what do we know about their range? We know they're capped and condensed. You know, we know they're not calling us with the bottom of their range because, you know, they're not going to do that. And we know they're not calling us with the top of the range because they'd raise us. And, yeah, there's exceptions to those. There's always exceptions. But the norm is they're calling with a, a capped and condensed range. And we can take and win a lot of hands post-flop with targeted aggression when we have those combinations of things going on. It becomes very hard for them within a cap range to call the more pressure we add. Yeah, I think strategic aggression comes down to choosing good spots and choosing good candidates with those spots. A lot of people, I'm surprised how many people still don't fully appreciate the power of position. And I know you know the power of position. So if you are the aggressor against a capped range, like you mentioned, and you have position on that person, you have more knowledge than they do by virtue of the fact that they get to act first. Now, a couple ways of choosing good spots and how to proceed that way, I think people think they can just bluff and push people off hands. And those are actually two different things. It's difficult to push a thinking player off a hand. Conversely, it's difficult to bluff a non-thinking player. And I want to unpack that a little bit. So if you're up against a non-thinking player, do you really think they have the notion of range-on-range contests? Do they think they're pitting their full range against your full range? It could very well be they have two pretty cards. They have no idea what you have, but they want to see how those two pretty cards meet up with the flop or the turn. If they're not at all thinking about what you have or what you can do, you can't bluff them because bluffing them entails your ability to tell a cohesive and convincing story and you're battling an illiterate person who can't read the story. Conversely, a thinking player does understand the story, or at least they're more likely to understand the story. So if you try to just bluff with Wild Abandon and push them off a hand, they're going to see the plot holes. They're going to be like, 
Season 7 of Game of Thrones. Why did you wrap all this up with so many loose ends? And by the way, I am not watching Game of Thrones. I saved the entire series so I could binge watch it. I heard the last season completely sucked everything. I'm done. But that's an example of how you cannot push a thinking player off a hand and why Game of Thrones sucks. <laughs> um, well, uh, let's go down that rabbit hole for a minute. Yes, season seven was bad. Game of Thrones is still awesome. Um, <laughs> but You're, you're going to have to convince me about that. Maybe, <laughs> maybe later. I think that you're, what you're talking about is, is very true. And I really don't want to go too far down into the uh, blocker and anti-blocker uh, rabbit hole. But what I will say is that, yeah, you need to ha start looking at the board and it needs to be, you know, it's like it all, it still starts, even with the thinking player, it still starts with, did they call? Is their range capped and condensed? And is our range, you know, uncapped, you know, and if our range is uncapped, there's a lot we can do even against the thinking player with the proper board runouts. But then it goes even further. You know, you can start looking at things as to whether or not with each card, is it hitting my range more than it's hitting their range? But also, do I block the hands that they would call me with? And do I not block the hands that they would fold with? I don't want to block the hands that they're going to fold with. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's there's an extra step that has to be added in with a thinking player. And when you're, you're taking and you're trying to push somebody off a hand, it's a lot harder to bluff somebody who's not thinking. And although it's different to push somebody off a hand, it's still harder than bluffing a thinking player because they get stubborn. You know, it, it, they get stubborn. I have I have middle pair. I'm going to call. And they're not looking at the fact that you should be way ahead with, the, with your actions. Sometimes that takes a little more force. And it comes down to whether or not you're able to do that and whether or not they're a little more force is something they're capable to folding to, you know. So maybe instead of it being a half pot to three quarter bet, maybe it's a pot to pot and a half bet. Not everybody's capable of that and not everybody should do that. You know what I mean? If you can't handle doing that, getting called and being able to deal with the emotional ramifications of it, don't do it. I think that there, I don't have a problem doing it. So I guess the best way I would say it is I don't have a problem doing it, but that doesn't mean I'm always right to do it. And the person who cannot handle it and, and, and immediately is going to be on tilt or lose their crap or for the next three weeks is going to play badly over it, don't do it. You know, I think you bring up a really good point, and this gets to the almost sheer lack of river bluffs at lower stakes games. <laughs> you almost never see people bluff on the river and almost never see a river shove as a bluff because a lot of people don't have that intestinal fortitude to pull that trigger. It doesn't even matter if it's the absolute right move. The scariest card came on the river. It brings in all the flushes. It brings in the straights. It brings in a really high pair. You could have full confidence that shoving on the river would get the guy to fold. Maximizing fold equity is a really good way to manufacture EV, but so many people don't have the guts to do it at the lower stakes. And that's interesting. So we had talked about the problem, how to manufacture EV. Uh, we talked about some of the solutions like strategic aggression, choosing your spots, choosing your cards, having a better range construction. What are some tools that we can arm our audience with? All right. Well, first I always like to, um, you know, I, I've, I've been trying to, and I'm going to try to going forward. I like to bring up 
uh, material that is out there that, that people can read that can help them. One of my favorites is uh, by Alex Fitzgerald, Exploitative Play. Oh man, I'm going to mess up the title. He has a book out there on exploitative play in, in low stakes games. Maybe it's just in poker in general, but it's, uh, it's a good book and uh, it gives you a lot of uh, tools in there you can use to manufacture EV. Another thing is, is you can start by making sure you have a well-constructed range in a well-constructed three-bet range, because the biggest way is you're going to manufacture EV is to start out by being the aggressor in the hand, you know, and being able to be the aggressor going into post-flop play. So some of that is going to be, you know, uh, you can take up Poker Cruncher or uh, Flopzilla and start building a three-bet range and seeing how it flops. You know, you can take your range, do a lot of work out with Flopzilla and, and Poker Cruncher, see how it flops, see where you can have moments where if you put in multiple ranges of your opponents, you can see how well your range is hitting against their cap range and how much power you have. And that's going to help open up some spots for you. And, of course, the best tool here is just coaching. <laughs> What do you have for tools? Table observation. Oh. Like actually noticing the people at the table. People either telegraph or very openly display so much information about whether they're flop honest or turn honest or fit or fold. Or I'm thinking this one guy specifically at my casino who will be aggressive pre-flop, flop, and turn and will almost always cave to a large river bet doesn't even matter what you have. Like I have one hands with him with absolute air. I know I shouldn't. Sometimes I do these things just for fun because I think I can get away with it. In this example, I do. But when you are not in a hand, you can still be in the hand. Just because you folded your two cards doesn't mean that you don't have the ability to observe the table, put yourself in the other player's shoes, maybe try to imagine what their ranges are, and then do some range on range construction in real time at game speed, because let's face it, it is so hard to do whatever you study off table. It is so hard to replicate that at game speed. But if you're actually projecting yourself onto one of your opponents at game speed, like, okay, I folded the hand, but let me pretend I'm this guy. What do I think I have? All right, what's my opponent doing this with? The more you can observe what your players are doing, the better able I think you are to at least maybe deviate from your construction. I think we mentioned before ABC and D ranges and E ranges. And of course the old, the effort range. <laughs> but the ABC is your standard basic poker, well-constructed. You kind of know what you're doing. It's almost like on autopilot because this is what you've studied. And then D is your deviation, like what kind of hands you might throw into your range in some positions against some opponents. And exploitative is even like beyond that, even wider than that. Right. So, so I'm that so might be a tool I use. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up table observations because it always kills me when people say they're bored at the table. They're, they're bored if they play tight. How the heck can you be bored? There's so much to watch. There's so much to study, you know, and there's so many different things. And you're right. This is one of the biggest, biggest tools you can use for manufacturing EV, you know, because people will have different bet sizes based on, on their hands. They'll have different, they'll behave differently based on their hands some people are always fit or fold some people are very turn honest you need to pay attention to this stuff this will tell you where you can open up and make some more money make more money <laughs> and by the way the title of that book is exploitative play in live poker by thank alex you. fitzgerald thank you very much yes <laughs> all right well 
I think we did a pretty good cover of this topic. Do you have anything else to add before we sign off? I do not. I just, it's been really fun. It's been another fun time with you, BJ. As always. And thank you all for listening. And until next week, this is The Blind Stealing the Blinds. In position against an opponent who is way too turn honest and has a capped range. Flop heavily favors me as the pre-flop aggressor. Both barrels locked and loaded. Let's do this.